Welcome to the Goddesses of Social Work podcast, hosted by Renita Ray Davis, licensed clinical social worker, board-approved social work clinical supervisor, and facilitator of the Goddesses of Social Work supervision community. Join us as we travel through the social work journeys told by the Goddesses of Social Work community members, past and present, as they make their way toward clinical licensure. Welcome to the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. I'm here today with Marquise Bird, LMSW. Marquise Bird is the author of My Guiding Light, a four-step guide on how to effectively use God's word to thrive in life, and the co-author of the international best-selling book, Woman Rise. Marquise is a licensed master social worker with 14 years of experience with family and children, child adolescent mental health, and most recently, child welfare. She received her bachelor's and master's degree from Jackson State University. Marquise has served as a board member for the Mary S. Nellums Foundation. She is an active member of New Jerusalem Church. Alongside her husband, Marquise facilitates the couple Sunday school class and has assisted as a facilitator for Financial Peace University, as well as providing budget counseling. Her mission is to shine the light that will lead others to Christ utilizing her spiritual gifts of exhortation, teaching, and helping through her weekly virtual Bible study entitled My Guiding Light. Marquis' passion is to encourage, motivate, and elevate individuals from all walks of life by helping them to realize who they are in Christ. Marquise is a wife and mother of five amazing children. When she is not working or spending time with her family, Marquise enjoys reading and watching Hallmark movies. Welcome to the show, Marquise. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So glad you're here. Great bio. The first thing that came to mind reading your bio is our mutual love for Hallmark movies. <laughs> It is my guilty pleasure. They soothe my soul after a day of social working. What is it about Hallmark movies that you enjoy, Mark, please? No matter what happens in the story, there's always a happy ending. Yes. The world is so full of negativity, but you turn on Hallmark and there's always a happy ending. So a nice blanket, a cup of cocoa, your favorite pillow and a Hallmark movie and you can just wash the day away. I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> but let's finish the podcast first and then we'll get to our Hallmark movies. I love that. Also reading your bio, I actually was thinking today um, about the financial social work certification. I'm working on it. It's offered by Rita Wolfson. I love reading your bio that you are a facilitator for the Financial Peace University and a budget counselor. How important do you think it is for social workers to have financial peace? It's extremely important because when you think about it, um, for in order for a social worker to show up for their clients, for the people that they serve, they need peace in general. You have to show up on a day at work and your mind is boggled down because you're behind on your rent or your mortgage or you're, you're trying to figure out how to provide for your children or pay this bill or pay that bill. It impacts the work that you do. It impacts how you show up each and every day. And it also impacts your own health. So it is extremely important. Me personally, I think, we all need some type of financial counseling. 
and somebody to help hold us accountable and just to check in to make sure that we're okay and that we're on the right path with our finances. Absolutely. I talk a lot to uh, social workers about social workers have their own social worker or at least a, a therapist. It doesn't have to necessarily be a social worker. But I also, the last couple of years, have been expanding that, not just your own therapist, but your own financial counselor, right? And or right. we need a team, really, a medical professional, a doctor, or some type of holistic practitioner, maybe if you're into that, but also Absolutely. a financial, yeah, a financial advisor and or counselor who can help you with that part of your life as well. So what are some of the benefits? You know, I you, you said that you are a facilitator of Financial Peace University, you're a budget counselor. What have you seen? as some of the benefits for providing that particular service? When it comes to budget counseling, number one is the fact that most people don't do a budget. Most people say, well, I have it in my head. Yes, but you have a thousand other things in your head as well that clouds your judgment. And therefore, if you have those numbers running through your head with everything else, you tend to forget something. Something may fall through the cracks that you need to pay or you need to make arrangements to pay or something like that. Or it's just a simple fact that sometimes looking at your budget, another set of eyes can see what you missed. And then two is the fact that we're attached to those things that are comforts. We're attached to certain things. And so we may not think to, hey, if I cut down in this area, then I will have an extra amount of money to put over here in this area. And a lot of times we do not like to cut back. So we need that person that's going to show tough love and say, yes, you like this, you enjoy this, you want this, but it's not a need. And to tell the little child that's screaming on the inside of us that says, I want, I want, I want. No, you cannot have, not this time, but if you will put it into your budget and work your way to it, then you can get it. Mm, yeah, tough love, right? And you seem very comfortable in that space. I had to learn. I had to learn the hard way and it was not always easy. So it's, it's a process. Absolutely. Yeah. Marquis, tell us about your social work journey and please, please, please include how you became a international bestselling author. And congratulations, by the way. Thank you. For starters, I absolutely had no idea about social work. I graduated high school with the intention of going into college to become a pediatrician. Growing up, I would I grew up in a low-income area. So, you know, I would see kids in um, different states of poverty or whatnot. I see things that they were lacking, and I always had a desire to help them. I've always had a desire to work with children. But I know I knew that teaching was not my calling, not in the classroom setting, not with children. That was not my calling. And so the only other thing that I knew was to be a pediatrician because they work with children. My first year at Tougaloo College, I had a writing assignment in my effective writing class. 
And the assignment has something to do with researching careers to where there are different aspects to that one career field. And as I began to research, I stumbled across social work. And as I began to read more and more about social work and learn that, oh, it's more out there than DHS and snatching people's children. Oh my goodness, you can do this with it and you can you can go into the schools, you can go into the hospitals, you can go into the prisons, you can go out into the community. I had no idea about that because I had never encountered a social worker. So as I began to read and do the research for my assignment, I got excited because it was like, oh, this is for me. This is what I want to do because the truth be told, I'm not a fan of blood and gore. So being a pediatrician would not have worked out for me. So that day, I went to my advisor and changed my schedule all around. And at the time, Tougaloo did not have social work as a course or a major, but they did. They had sociology with the emphasis in social work. But I started there. And so I changed it. And that began my journey into social work. And also, it's when it comes to the book, I grew up with a parent on drugs. I grew up in a low income area. I grew up in the midst of some dysfunction and things. And so sometimes you tend to gravitate towards that. You tend to kind of hold that close to you and have that desire to say, I want to be, I want to do something better for somebody else. I want to show up for somebody else. I want to let somebody else know that they can come out of this. However, it was not my intention to put my business in a book. Woman Rise was the first book um, that I did, I wrote, and it was a collaboration with about 19, 20 other women. And so it was telling my story of overcoming adversity and rising above the obstacles of life. And in that story, I tell about how I experienced childhood sexual abuse. Now, like I said, it was never my intention to tell that story, but when the opportunity presented itself and I really prayed and prayed and prayed because I really was trying to get out of it. And I said, well, God, I don't have a story to tell. And he said, yes, you do. And the thing is, up until that point, I had never told anyone. My parents did not know. And so I had maybe a month prior I finally revealed to my parents what had happened. And that was, a, that was a little bit of a shocker for them. And so then I put it in a book and I'm like, oh my God, I'm telling the world. Oh my God, what are they going to think? What are they going to say? How are people going to look at me? And it was like, oh, I went through a whole list of panic, but God was just showing me, you need to tell this story because somebody else needs to experience deliverance. Somebody else needs to be set free. And so you have been silent for too long. And so I had to tell that story. And I did. And because I told that story, it gave me the courage to finish my own book, which was My God and Light. It gave me the courage to finish that because that was a book that I had started about 12 years ago and never finished. It was about 75 to 80% complete. And it was just sitting there. The the desire was there for me to complete it, but I never did. And so once I finished with Woman Rise, the coach, the visionary author that we had for that story, uh, she worked with me to get my other book, My God and Light, published on Amazon. 
And so I was so excited and actually published January the 3rd of this year is when the paperback became available. And I'm so excited because in that particular book, it was just my desire to show people that God's word is still applicable today. Yes, everything that happened occurred over 2,000 years ago or whatnot. Yes, the times were different. They lived in a totally different society, a totally different culture with a totally different language, a group of people and everything. But we can still take his word and apply it to different aspects of our lives today. And it was my desire to do so because people don't like to read the Bible. It's boring. It doesn't make sense. I can't understand it. And to be honest, when I began reading it about 20 years ago, sitting at my grandmother's table, it's like, God, what in the world are you talking about? I don't understand this. How does this apply to me? At that time, I was a single mother with two children. And I was 20 years old. I need you to tell me how can I move from the place I am now to something better? How can I get up out of this slump that I am in? How can I not become another statistic? That's what I need you to tell me. And I didn't understand how at the time, but as I prayed and I continued to read, it didn't happen overnight, but over a period of time, it began to happen and God began to open his word up more to me and, and began to show me. And as I began to learn and understand and write down some of the things that God was showing me, the desire grew that, oh, other people need to know this. Other people need to hear this. And maybe then the desire to read the word for themselves will be increased. And so that's how that came about. But little did I know with, as in the title, my God and light, when you have a light to guide you, that means there's some darkness around you somewhere. That means there's some things that you got to maneuver through and get around. It's some hills that you have to climb. It's some mountains that's going to be there. It's some valleys that you got to go down in. And so we don't think about that. But when we find ourselves in these difficult moments, we got to stop and remember, hey, God's word is there. Um, the background for my God and light comes from Psalm one, uh, 119 verses 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Everything in our lives, whatever we're going through, the word can guide us through. We just have to take the time to read and to study and be patient enough to receive and hear from God. You're preaching tonight, sister, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> I love it. I want to back up a little. That was a lot. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your testimony so transparently with us. And I and I before I back up, I, I the first thought I'm having is I'm sure the after you told your parents, after you put in them an international selling book, did it become easier for you to tell your story or is it still difficult? And you work in children welfare and I'm sure the, the little girl that experienced that is seeing that over and over and over in the, in the clients. And so how do you navigate through all of that, Marquise? Well, for starters, it has gotten easy to tell the story over time. It has gotten easy, but because of the walk that I'm on in my spiritual life, I'm more determined now than ever to say, hey, 
not my will, Lord, but what your will be done. So at this point in my life, God, if you're telling me to go, if you're telling me to tell it, that's what I'm going to do. Now, I still get nervous. I still kind of have those little butterflies in my stomach and everything. But I've just decided, hey, God, your will, not mine. Let's go. And when I stop thinking about everything else, drown out everything else, it makes it easier for me. But it's not easy all the time, you know, working in child welfare. And what I do, I review investigations all day long. Once they're completed, I go in and I review these investigations. So when I'm reading some of these stories, yes, any little thing can trigger you. Any little thing. So there are some moments when I have to push away and go for a walk. There are some moments when I have to just stop and really pray. There are some moments when I may have to just pick up the phone and call my husband and say, hey, I need you to pray for me. Or I start talking to him about something to get to shift my focus for a minute until I'm able to go back into it. But for the most part, as I'm reading about the stories, more than anything, I find myself praying for the families. As I'm reading for the investigation, I'm praying for them. They don't know it, but God knows it. I know it. And I'm, and I'm calling them out by name silently to myself, just lifting them up in prayer, praying that these situations would change, praying that the feelings that I had that I'm pretty sure that some of them are having that praying that those feelings would not overtake them or get the best of them or anything. So that's kind of what I find myself doing. And I have learned leave work at work. That is so important. It is not always easy, especially with a lot of people who work directly with clients, especially child welfare on the front line. It's not always easy, especially when you're getting calls in the middle of the night, all times of the day and different things. But at some point before all of that overtakes you and causes your own mental health to begin to decline, you have to push away from it and leave it at work. And I bet that lesson didn't happen overnight for you too, right? It did not. It did not. I took everything home with me. I was up sleepless nights thinking, turning over in my head because I'm a natural nurturer. I want to fix it. I want to be mama bear. I want to wrap you in my arms and hold you tight. And I want to make it better. And some things you just can't make better. And that was the worst thing of all, just knowing that I can't. Yeah, yeah. The work we do is really tough. And I, I want to just thank you for the work you do, because a lot of folks get a bad rap, right? But it, this is mm -hmm. needed work and it's difficult work. So I want to thank you. Um, I always want to thank folks who work at DHR and DFACS for doing the work that you do because so many of us can't do it. And so thank you. Marcus, I'm going to move, go all the way back though, right? You got okay. your undergraduate degree in sociology with a concentration in, so is that how they call it? I started at Tougaloo mm -hmm. with a major of sociology with an emphasis in social work, but I received both degrees in social work from Jackson State. I ended up transferring and leaving Tougaloo. 
Good. Okay. That's why I want. Okay. All right. So what made you decide? All right. This is cool. The sociology major, but I think I need to go get the real deal. I was curious about that. Life happened and life happened in the form of me having life. And that's the best way to put it. I ended up getting pregnant. And so I left school. And which was very upsetting to me because I value education. So it was not something I wanted to do, but it was something that had to be done at that time because I had a child. And then I ended up getting pregnant again when my first child was about nine months old. But needless to say, I the desire for school was always there. So by the time I went back to school, I actually started at Heinz, Heinz Community College, and I finished out the general courses that I did not complete at Tupelo. Then I transferred to Jackson State. And by that time, I was married, so I had a support. I got married at 21, so I had a support and I had assistance with the children so I could afford to go back to school. How did you know to get your master's? You know, here you are. You knew you were going to go into social work. You knew that from, by the way, both your writing career and your social work career all started from that writing assignment you had in that class. And I thought, I just thought that was so ironic. But, you know, so many people go ahead and get that undergraduate. For me, I know I went straight back and got my master's. And I remember my mother saying, why are you going back and getting a master's? So I'm always curious, especially those of us who may not have grown up with parents who uh, valued higher education, how did you know to go back and get that master's degree? There was so much more to learn and I wanted to learn it. And because of different career paths I wanted to take, I knew that I needed an additional uh, degree. And besides that, I enjoy the fact that with a master's degree, it opened up more doors. And that's something that I did like about that, the doors that they did open for me. So it was a, for me, it was a no brainer. Go ahead and go back. And at the time I waited, honestly, I think about five or six years before going back or almost five or six years, somewhere up in there. But I waited first, but I said, either I'm going to go and do it or I'm not, but it's time to make a decision and do something. So I went ahead and went for it and went back and got the degree. And it it was difficult because you have children, you have a spouse. I, I was not working at the time, but you still had a lot of responsibilities going on. But it was when you want to do something really bad, you'll make a way. You get it done. That's right. Yes. yes. Talk to me about your licensing journey. I'm always curious about. Uh, especially black women's licensing journey. What was your what was your experience with the license exam and, and getting your license? It was nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. For the undergrad and grad, when I prepared for the licensure, I studied and I studied and I studied. I took practice tests after practice tests. And honestly, um, we would have a computer lab at Jackson State where we could go into on the undergrad level and take practice tests that were similar to the actual licensure exam. And I failed every single one of them, every single one of them. So 
And at that time, I had to take the licensure exam in order to graduate. And it was just like, oh my goodness. I was very discouraged, honestly. But for me, when I find those moments of discouragement, I go into prayer. I go into worship. I get to talking to God. So leading up, I take a test, take a test, take a test, and I flunk it, I flunk it, I flunk it. And um, and these are the practice tests. So I, I was like, God, whatever happens, you know what I'm getting this degree for. You know why I need this license. It's not necessarily about what I want to do. It's about what I'm called to do. So I, you have called me to do a work, so you're going to have to do it. Because obviously, looking at those test scores, I couldn't do it on my own. So I just prayed about it, and I, I worshiped, and I thank God in advance for what he was going to do. Whether he did it or not, I'm still going to thank you, Lord. And so that's all I did. And everybody wants to know, well, how did you pass? And when I tell them, it's like, but what did you study? And the thing I tell them, you can study as much as you want to. There's always going to be something on that test that you do not know. Don't stress yourself out. You can study all you want to. And some of the answers that you know without a shadow of a doubt are the correct answers will be the wrong answers according to the way that the creators of that test decided to answer that question. So go in, do the best that you can and let that be it. That's the only thing that you can do. I love your gift of exhortation. Yes, I love that so much. Oh, I could just listen to you talk all night, but I am going to move on to our next question, okay? Um, a big reason I wanted to start this podcast was to promote the importance of being in community with other social workers. And so, Marquez, I'm wondering what social work communities do you belong to or social work communities have you created? And what have you learned about yourself or the profession from participating in those communities? Well, I have not created a community. I have joined like Facebook group social work communities where they may put different information in there, different resources for people. And you can go into the groups and ask different questions, find out information, find out what does this program offer? What does that program offer? But what I have learned to do is in my Facebook groups and um, in private groups, get with people outside of social work because they are a wealth of information. It does not matter that they don't have your background. They have information that you need. Even somebody like a content creator, can, can they can connect you with some, somebody. Social work is all about networking because there is always a resource. There's always something that your client is going to need that I'm not knowledgeable in that area. I don't know about this and I don't know about that, but I can call this person over here who may know any and everybody. And that's one of the things that has helped me in addition, just building um, networks through my job. In my, my current position, I don't work directly with clients. I don't work directly with anyone. So I don't typically network with anyone, but I still have people that I can call on when I need to, to ask questions. 
previously I worked in mental health at a mental health hospital. So I was I was in contact with the court. I was in contact with the mental other mental health facilities. I was in contact with community resources and things. And you build those communications, you build those networks, and that helps a whole lot. And you keep those lines open as much as possible so that they can always come to you and you can always come to them. Absolutely. I love that answer so much. I, it was just brilliant. I was like, you're absolutely right. We need to be in contact <laughs> with other folks outside of social work in order to assist ourselves one, but then also assist our clients. And so that was such a brilliant answer. And so I'm going to lean into it just a little bit more. I know that you're heavily involved with your church. How do you see your skills as a social worker being transferable in your communities outside of the profession? And, and you know, think we're expanding it. Okay. Well, going back to the church, my husband does a lot of the budget counseling and I'm there to assist. And so as he met with the couples or the individuals, I was right there. And as he began to work on finances, I would sit there and I'm, hmm, wait a minute, there's more going on here. I would pay attention to the body language, pay attention to what wasn't said, pay attention, pay attention to different things that maybe he did not hear because he's focused on the finance side of it. And as we began to meet with the couples and things, I would kind of, you know, tell him things that he may have missed or I would interject during the meetings and ask different questions that was pertinent to their finances. And so that helped a lot. And then just being able to just talk to them and sympathize with them and understand what they're going through or how this is affecting their lives and or maybe pull them to the side and say well i realize that this may be going on you didn't say it but i get the feeling that this or that is going on do you need this or do you need this resource or do you need that resource and being available just to offer resources or say hey well did you know that this program over here offers this service or that service and a lot of times we don't think about that. And honestly, I never wanted to do budget counseling either. Numbers were not my thing, not even in school. And so I never saw how the two would work together, me being in the social work field and him doing budget counseling. And But as I began to sit there and listen and pay attention and know too, when you're going over finances, hey, let's pause and let me hold your hand for a second. Let me offer you some comfort because I can see that this is really hurting you. This is really bothering you. This is weighing on your conscience or it's bothering your mental health. So let's stop and pause and you take a deep breath. And as we're going through this, I have been where you are. There's light at the end of the tunnel and better yet, there's light inside the tunnel. So you can get through this. It's hard, but you can get through it. Mm -hmm. there's light inside the tunnel oh that was so good I love that you are seeing you know well I'll say it like this I 
am seeing more and more the need for social workers in the business world, in the money world, in the accounting world. Because when you said you could see when he's talking and or they're going through their budget and you literally can physically see the emotional heaviness on those folks, mm -hmm. that is a social work skill set. And we are needed in those spaces because it is a psychological yeah. grief that they may be carrying that um, someone who's focused on the numbers is not really paying it. They just want the solution. We see that there's a healing that may need to happen. Absolutely right, right. beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. Marquez, what is one belief about social work that you started on this journey with that you feel has changed the most? Oh, goodness. The belief that I could change the world. The belief that I could just go out here and be superwoman and help everybody and make everybody's lives better and get everybody out of the situation that they're in. But I had a mentor tell me, what if that person doesn't think anything is wrong with their life? What if to them they are already successful? What if to them their situation is perfect and nothing is wrong with it? I had never thought about that. And so I had to take a step back and reevaluate re my priorities or my thought process on somebody else's situation. Because that's also something she taught me is the fact that the people that I serve and work with, the clients that sit before me, they are the experts in their lives, not you. You cannot go in telling these people what they should do, what they ought to do, what they need to do. You can't go in critiquing and criticizing their lives and think that they will listen to you. So I had to take a step back and I had to listen. I had to learn and I had to realize, hey, that's not your problem to solve. Your job is to sit here, listen. Your job is to gather the information. Your job is to offer resources whether they want them or not, you offer them and let them decide. You can't make their decisions. That was a hard pill to swallow. I wanted to make everybody's life better, but I realized I could not do it. And I had to accept it and be okay with it. And it took a minute for me to be okay with it. But now I'm okay to say, hey, that's your life. Okay, if that's what's best for you, that's fine. Absolutely. That is one of my favorite people who know me. <laughs> no, I say it all the time. The client is the expert in their life. Even when I'm talking to my clients, maybe they're going to a medical doctor for the first time or a nurse practitioner. I even tell them they are the expert, even though the doctor, you know, is an expert in whatever he or she is doing. The client is still the expert in his or her life. And so go being empowering the client to show up as the expert, even when they're surrounded by other people who may deem themselves as experts. I yeah. love that. And you know what I was thinking, Marquis, that, you know, oftentimes, you know, social workers become social workers because they had familial issues going on. And so we take this skill... Yes of wanting to save the world and, you know, save people. And that transfers into our family. When we learn in our profession that the client is an expert in their own life, we can then also allow our family members, right, to also be the expert in their own life. And then we can sit back and watch Hallmark movies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
I'm recently learning that still. It's taken a while to learn that, especially when it comes to families. But I'm learning. Social work is a journey and we're always learning. And I love that so much. Oh, Marcos, that was such a great answer. You got me hyped. But I'm going to go on to our last question. I can't believe we're almost done. This was such a great conversation. But, you know, I was thinking you have these two books that you've written. You are doing some big things within your community and at your church. Um, you're a standout, right? And so in a world, <laughs> I was thinking about like this, in a world of cookie cutter treatment plans, what advice would you give social workers trying to stand out in the crowd within our profession? The mistake a lot of times that we make is going into the field, going into the job, leaving, especially leaving school with these grandiose ideas. And there's nothing wrong with that. However, we have all of these ideas and we want to be everything and we need to focus on the one thing. We can move to other things, but focus on that area of strength that you do have is show up in full authenticity. Don't try to be like your instructors. Don't try to copy and emulate anybody else that you have seen in the field. Go in being yourself. And I learned that working with children and adolescents in the mental health facilities. It's, it's clinical. But when you're dealing with children, you have to sit clinical, clinical to the side sometimes. They don't want to hear all of your social work jargon. They don't want to hear the big words. They don't want to hear all the diagnoses and things. You have to get on their level. You have to meet them and not just the children, but the adults as well. Meet them where they are because even though some of them are adults, they are adults with little children screaming and crying, trying to get out and break free from the inside. So don't go in and you be the professional, but be human and show them that you are human as well. Because when you show them that you are human, they will let their guards down or at least drop them a little bit so that you can understand or get to know what exactly is going on with them. And again, I learned that working with children, especially children in the drug and alcohol arena, they're not, they don't want to tell you all of their information. They don't want you to know about this and that because you're judging me. But for me, Whenever I had to interview a child, what's your drug of choice? I may ask that, but that seems more clinical. How much weed do you smoke? How many blunts do you roll in a day? Just go ahead and tell me. I know you do it, so go ahead and tell me. And the fact of the matter is, be human enough to listen to them without correcting them. They have enough people correcting them. Be willing to listen without correcting and saying, well, you know, this is bad for you. You know this and you know that. They know it. They don't want to hear you say it. So, okay, tell me, you smoke this amount of day. Okay, this and that. Well, tell me about this. Tell me about that. I have, I have received more drug and alcohol education from children and adolescents than I have received in handbooks. 
than I have received in the classroom because I can sit there and listen to the ones who are out there doing these things, how they're doing it. And because I sat there, I listened, I asked questions and I showed interest, they became an open book. And most people will when you do not judge them. Most people will when they realize that you're not coming against them in any kind of way. So again, you have to be yourself. You have to show that humanness without, you know, you can still be professional, but show that you're human at the same time. Absolutely. I love that. And I, you know, I want to just reiterate too, even with adult clients, we're talking to their inner child too, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So doing the same Definitely. thing, even with the adult clients, that was yes. such a great answer this has been such an amazing interview thank you for saying yes it has thank you for the invite marquis are we going to be able to find your books on amazon are you going to provide the links for your books for and how can people reach out to you okay the links for my book i have to i can give them to you um okay. my books can be ordered through paypal and I can give you the links or for my God and light, it is available on Amazon as well. That's so awesome. I can give you both links for that. And the best way to contact me is email at mygodandlight23 at gmail.com. I am on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. Yeah. All the things. Yeah. All the things. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm on all of those platforms as well. But awesome. the best way is email. Perfect. I'll make sure that we put those links in the description of your podcast episode. Okay. Thanks for coming on the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. It was such a great interview. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. We are glad you were here. If you liked this episode, please come back to hear more stories of the journeys through social work and please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. See you next time here on the Goddesses of Social Work Podcast.